Well, good evening. Thank you uh, once again for having me here tonight. It's great, greatly my honor and my privilege, and my it's just a pleasure to be with you and to share my testimony. Uh, we were joking before the talk. I, I've been come to known as the porn guy around uh, evangelization circles around the country, and I'm okay with that. I'll share my testimony with you tonight. I'll share with you a little bit of the passion and how I came to experience God in my life and how that transformed me. And, uh, and you'll realize very quickly that I'm happy to speak on this issue. Uh, I praise God for the opportunity to talk to people. Because as you can see, they're, they're, just, they're breaking down the doors to come in here. That's how popular this, this topic is in our society. And yet, if we were to walk out the campus, I, I would argue we wouldn't get very far before we would encounter pornography in a very real and profound way, whether it's at the gas station on the corner or even before we even get there, listening to music coming from someone's car, the billboard, you know, you name it. You have all experienced it, and we're going to talk about that tonight. Again, uh, I work for a ministry called Fullness of Truth Catholic Evangelization Ministries. We uh, host Catholic family conferences, and we share the, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church with as many as people as God will allow us to share it with. And we do that through events. And we hire speakers to come and give talks and workshops and catechesis and things of that nature. Since 2007, I've uh, hosted my own website called catholichack.com, uh, where I try to be the most passionate, on-fire lay evangelist that I can be. My motto on the, the catholichack.com is to be the donkey Jesus rides today. If you were to look back in the book of Numbers... You would see a, a very interesting episode where God caused a donkey to speak for his purposes. If you look through the book of Judges, you will see the strong man Samson, how he took the jawbone, just the jawbone of a jackass, and slayed thousands of Philistines with it. So I thought, if God can do all of that with just the jawbone of a jackass... Imagine what he will accomplish with a complete jackass like me. <laughs> Much of what I do is just about sharing the faith. Sharing what I love. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, the sins of our fathers come back to haunt us. They are generational. We were all born in a concupiscent nature. We have the Fomus peccati, a tender to sin. We're geared to sin. Since the fall of mankind, our intellect has become subordinate to our passions. So when we're hungry, we eat. Well, when we lust, we self-medicate on pornography, on other persons. This is the nature in which we live. But this is not the nature in which it was designed. If we were to go back through salvation history, we would see that at every highlight, at every milestone, at every mountaintop moment of salvation history, there was a covenant mediator who had a peak, a height, and then he had a fall, usually related to sexual sin. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we are told that both Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed, and the two became one. The one flesh union is the most intimate moment between a man and a woman when they enter into sexual unity, when their drive physically leads them to oneness, the perfect giving of, of each other to each other. 
The very next verse in sacred scripture, we are told in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, that the most cunning of all of the creatures entered into the garden. That is the serpent, the great Nahash, the Leviathan, as Isaiah says, or the great red dragon, as the book of Revelation says. So when did Satan come into the, the, the story, the scene? When man and woman were at their most vulnerable, their most intimate moment, when they were one and unashamed. Seven verses later, we are told that they are now naked and ashamed, hiding in a bush. Because of the sin that Adam brought into his house, what happens? His son Cain kills his other son Abel. When a man lets sin into his house, his children pay the price. Let's fast forward to Noah, Genesis chapter 8 and 9. Noah comes off the ark, he builds an, ar- he builds a- an altar, and there he offers a sacrifice to God. And God puts the rainbow in the sky and remakes the covenant with creation and with man. There is a new Adam and a new pinnacle, a new height. Things are right again. And then what happens to Noah? We are told he plants a vineyard, making himself a garden, growing grapes, fermenting wine, and he gets drunk. Well, what happens? You see, the price of the sin is the sin itself. If I drink too much, I become a drunk. Well, Noah is here a drunk. So what does his children do? His son Ham, we are told, looks upon his nakedness. Now, scholars like Scott Hahn, Dr. John Bergsma, and others have written articles on this. They say it's a Hebrew idiom. It means Ham, the youngest of the sons of Noah, was trying to usurp the authority of the firstborn of Noah, Shem. He was trying to steal the primogeniture, the role of the firstborn in the family. So what does he do? He takes advantage of the drunkenness of his father by having an ancestral relationship with his father's wife. Sexual sin has now come back to roost on the nakedness of Noah. Let's fast forward. Abraham, the great man of faith, we are told, who walks in righteousness with God, right? Well, he got tired of waiting on God's promises to come true. See, God had promised he would have children as many as the stars and the sand of the sea, the sand of the shore, right? Well, he got tired of waiting for God to, you know, ante up on that promise. So Sarah, his wife, said, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, God intends for us to take the bull by the horns and maybe we should come up with a program ourselves. How about you enter into my young concubine, my young servant, Hagar. Well, the great man of faith, of course, said, I will not. No, wait a minute. He didn't say that, did he? How did this great man of faith act? He said, yeah, that's a great idea, honey. High five. And he enters into this young woman. And of course, she gets pregnant. And of course, she bears a son, Ishmael. Through sexual sin, what happens? Devastation is is wreaked havoc upon his children. As soon as that happens, there is nothing more than fighting between Sarah and Hagar. Selfishness and, and hurt feelings and walls get built up until the point when after Isaac is born, Sarah has Hagar and her son Ishmael cast out of the tribe. What is the great man of faith to do? He loves his son Ishmael. The, 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 the text makes that very clear to us. But he's caught between a rock and a hard place. He's met his, he made his bed. Now he has to lie in it. What does God do in Genesis chapter 17? 
he forces Abraham to cut off a piece of his flesh from his penis. Notice that the penance, the price he has to pay, is related to the crime that he committed. You don't know how to use that thing? Well, then let me show you what's going to happen to you. You can't control yourselves? Well, let me control it for you. Well, sin really had its damage and the, the descendants of Abraham as a result. We could look at Isaac, which was actually a righteous man. But then you go to Jacob, his son. Now you're getting into trouble. But let's fast forward to Moses. Moses, by the command of God, leads the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. After 430 years, he leads them all the way to Exodus chapter 19 at the foot of Mount Sinai. And there God enters into a covenant relationship. And he tells Moses, Moses, prepare the people for in three days I will come to meet them. Tell them they have to wash themselves ritually clean and abstain from sexual activity for three days. And then on the third day, I will come to meet with them. So he does. On the third day, God comes down on top of the mountain in a pillar of fire and smoke. What do the people do? They fall back. The thunder, the fire, the smoke, it scares them half to, half to death. And they beg Moses, you go up. We don't want to go up. You speak for us. Tell him not to come near us. Well, what just happened? Weren't these the same people who were led out of, of Egypt after 10 plagues, after 10 miraculous assaults on Egyptian gods? Weren't these the same people who were led by a pillar of fire and smoke, the same pillar on the top of the mountain? What's changed? Why are now are they scared? If I were to say to you, I'm going to tell you something, and for the next three minutes, you cannot think of this thing. Whatever you do, do not think of it. You can't think of football. How many of you thought of football right away? You can't help it, can you? It's human nature. So when the people were told they can't have sexual relations, that they must abstain, they must fast. Why? To prepare their hearts to receive the Lord. What is the one thing that the the text insinuates that they did? They had improper sexual activity during this time. This leads us to Exodus 32. Moses is now on top of the mountain, receiving the vision of the tabernacle. What are the people down below doing? They're starting to murmur. They're starting to cohort together. And they go over to Aaron and say, Aaron, you know, uh, who is that guy again? Oh yeah, Moses. That Moses fellow. We don't know if he's coming back. We don't even know where he is. Rise, get up, make us gods so that we can worship. Aaron being the prophet of God, of course said, I will not. No, Aaron doesn't do that either. All of these righteous men in in scripture, they tend to be just like the rest of us. They tend to cave under pressure. They tend not to stand up and do the right thing, even when it's necessary. Aaron, of course, he fashions the golden calf. The golden calf, it's the Egyptian god Apis. Why that particular idol? There were lots to choose from in Egypt. Why that one? Apis is young. He's virile. He's the fertility god. He's the god you give wealth to. Oh, yeah. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's not new. It's old. So what happens? Exodus 32, we are told that the people hold a big feast. And then they rise up to play. Again, a Hebrew idiom for they had an orgy at the base of Sinai to consummate their relationship with a false god. 
from that point on, from Exodus 32, down through Leviticus, down through Numbers, down through all the way through the book of Deuteronomy, it's nothing but a giant, big, fat fall for the people of Israel. And then you get into the book of Judges, and it's up and down, up and down, up and down, nothing but fallen from grace. And then all of a sudden, David comes on the scene. Now, David is different from all the rest. He's the only man in all of sacred scripture to be called a man after God's own heart. Now, David is fulfilling the role of the firstborn for all the people now. He is an emperor because under him, vassal kingdoms pay tribute. He offers sacrifices as a priest, even though the Levites were still doing that. And so you have a height, you have a pinnacle under David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God swears a covenant oath with David, saying that his son will be both the son of David and the son of God. And his son will have the kingdom forever. Luke chapter 1, verse 28 and following. That is the fulfillment of that, of that covenant. So this is David's height. You get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you got a whole different picture. The man after God's own heart is supposed to be leading his army out at battle in the springtime. But instead, what are we told he's doing? He's lounging in the palace. He's living large. And then one April morning or night or evening, he's hanging out on top of the palace and, oh, look, there's this woman over there and she's bathing. And he's lusting. Now, for the woman's part, do you think she didn't know that the king's palace was right over there? Oh, shucks, I didn't notice that, that I'm standing on my rooftop bathing. I mean, hello, takes two to tango. She was making herself ritually pure. You see, natural family planning was always the practice of the ancient world. They understood the women's cycle. She had just come off of her cycle. She was now ready to be in her fertile period. So she had to bathe herself to become ritually pure and clean again so that she can enter into the temple or the tabernacle and then participate in the worship, the liturgy to God. So is it any mistake that when David takes her, she conceives and becomes pregnant? This was the optimal time of her month. And of course, David, now all of a sudden going from a hero, man after God's own heart, now he's listed as a coward. He doesn't own up to his sin. He tries to hide it, bringing Uriah back, getting Uriah drunk, trying to get Uriah to go sleep with his wife. But Uriah is a man of courage, a man of integrity. Uriah refused. He said, I will not, not so long as the king, the king's army is out living in tents. I will not go home and live large. I will sleep on the stone floor. Direct contrast to the man David is now and this man whom David has killed. What happens to David's family? There is murder. There is rape. There is intrigue and revolt. From 2 Samuel 11 on, there's nothing but chaos. When a father lets sin into his home, devastation pursues in the lives of his children. I inherited my pornography addiction from my father and my father from his father. From the time what I can remember as early back as four, five, and six, I remember seeing how my father treated my mother, the words he said to her, the actions that he forced her to do, even in my sight, in the sight of my sister. Now, I didn't understand what those meant, and it became very normal to me to see those things happen. Needless to say, my father's pursuit for self-gratification and lust destroyed his marriage with my mother. By the time 
I'm six years old. They're divorced. I stay with my mother. My father goes on to pursue relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship. I can't begin to tell you how many new mothers I've been introduced to. Who are these women? They're not my mother. How dare you say that I should call them mother? How presumptuous of you. For my mother, same story. Man after man. These are now new fathers? I have a father. I don't need a new father. What is this nonsense you're pulling? Even a child knows that this is perverse. A child like me who didn't know anything. All I wanted was my parents together, even if they were hating one another. I just wanted them together. But instead, I was subjected to all of this stuff. Well, the men that my mother brought into my life, they had lots of porn problems drug problems and other problems. And of course, they were more than happy to give those problems to me, suggesting that it was somehow better for my development that I should receive this at home and not go into the world and get it. I hate to tell you this, but I had plenty of my own. By the time I'm 8, 9, and 10, I had my own stash. 10, 11, 12, I'm already masturbating daily several times. By the time I'm a teenager, I had made it my sole goal in life to be like my father. You see, my father was a career army non-commissioned officer. So I would join the Marine Corps. It's one better, I thought. My father had lots of relationships. I would have lots more. You see, my father was sharing his porn with me by the time I'm a teenager. And so all during high school, I made it my personal mission to consume as many women as I possibly could before graduating. I didn't make any bones about this. I didn't hide this fact. I would tell you straight to your face. Why? Because women were not human persons. All of my formation, all of my understanding of what love is and how to love someone else was based on pornography. Women wanted it rough. They might say no, but they mean yes. Women love to be treated that way. I can tell you stories that would shock your mind I won't share about the mentality of a person thoroughly addicted to porn, knowing nothing else. That was my whole world in high school. The Gulf War came up in 1991. I made my mother sign me over to the Marine Corps. I was 17 years old. So I go off to boot camp. I graduate number one. I was company honor man. My name was in lights. My parents were there. They were proud of me. I was skinny and good-looking and the best shape of my life. My parents actually walked right past me. They didn't even recognize me. I'm like, hello, right here. That's, you know, that, the transformation that took place physically was amazing. But I was let loose on the world. I was let loose on the world from California to Tennessee, back to California, and eventually to the one place you should never send a man so thoroughly sexualized as myself, Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii, where women don't like wearing clothes. Oh, let me tell you, I went after it with gusto. Because see, by this point, my father was giving me the tidbits of wisdom that a father passes down to a son, like how to have multiple sexual partners simultaneously. Like how to make sure that this girl doesn't find out what this girl knows. Like how not to pass sexually transmitted diseases. This is the kind of formation that my father has given me. This is the inheritance I took from my father. And I went after it. 
Again, I could tell lots of stories. I'll share one. I was stationed in Hawaii, and I had come to know uh, a staff sergeant in my unit very well. I worked second shift. He worked third. So there'd be like lots of hours where our shifts would overlap, and we would just hang out and talk. He started to invite me over to his house for dinner, which led to me hanging out more frequently on the weekends. Well, I got to know his wife, whom I slept with, by the way. But it was the wife's sister, a young 18-year-old girl, come to live with her sister in Hawaii. How cool is that? Of course, I started working my magic, working my angles, and it worked. She was a young, very gullible young lady. It wasn't long after I started sleeping with her that I really got bored of her. I was ready to move on. Now, lucky for me, my roommate also wanted to sleep with her. Sweet, easy, out, I'm done. He moves in, I move out. About a month later, I get a call. Hey, uh, Joe, I tell you her name, but I don't remember. I don't even remember her name. Hey, Joe, um, yeah, I'm pregnant. Whoa. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about getting an abortion. Great idea. That's awesome. Do you need, a, do you need someone to pay for that? How, how about a ride? I'll pick you up. I'll pick you up tomorrow. Let's go. I pick her up. I drive her downtown. Over the mountain, down into Honolulu. There's an abortion clinic right across the street from the Honolulu Mall. I walk her in. I check her in. I sit her down. I paid for it, of course. You see, I wasn't going to be tied down. I mean, it's just a blob of tissue. What difference does it make? I don't care. She was not going to tie me down. I mean, of course, it might not be my child, but what do I care? I'm just doing my roommate a favor here. The nurse calls her name. She gets up. I see her round the corner. The moment I can't see her anymore, I get up. I walk out. I go across the street to the Honolulu Mall, right into the food court, and I find this hot-looking chick. And I start talking to her, trying to get her phone number. So while I'm getting the phone number of this one woman, there's another woman right across the street, lying on her back, all alone in the world. Because there was not a man in her life willing to be a man. She had no choice. I murdered that child because I wasn't willing to be courageous. Because I wasn't willing to do the right thing when there was so much pressure around me to do the wrong thing. Because I wasn't willing to step up and be the man God created me to be. I murdered that child. I gave her no choice. What was she to do? She's 18. She's scared. She doesn't know. She thinks her whole life is flashing before her eyes. And the coward tells her, let's kill the child. Needless to say, I no longer wanted to serve my country with honor and integrity. I was too busy serving myself with selfishness and and just perversity. You see, I was thoroughly using porn every single day without question, sharing it amongst uh, the fellow Marines in the barracks. It's common practice. Every stage of my training, every single command I served in in the Marine Corps, every single level encouraged such perverse behavior. I could tell you stories of New Orleans and Mardi Gras in 93, or Camp Pendleton and, 
Escondido or Oceanside or L.A., you name it. That's, that was the culture. And we were all born that way, right? I mean, it's natural, the whole loving other people thing. I mean, they're consenting. Who's getting harmed here? I got out in 95, back home to San Antonio, Texas. I fell into a deep depression because I didn't know what to do with my life. I just thought I was going to spend the rest of my life in the military like my dad did. So I was like pointless and aimless and hopeless. And so I started drinking and I was at strip clubs almost every night trying to stop myself from committing suicide out of depression on several occasions. Wandering around the state of Texas aimless, not finding my way. And fortunately for me, my sister, being a good big sister that she is, was trying to fix me, trying to save me. She saw that I'm a massive train wreck. I'm gaining tons of weight by this point. She lets me move in with her and her husband and her children in Oklahoma City in 1996. Says, you know, hey, there's a, a radio broadcasting Votex school just down the street from us. I think you'd be perfect for that. Sweet. Everybody loves the cool DJ. You know how many chicks I'll get? Oh, yes. Duh, sign me up. I'm on it. Seven months of training. I applied at 130 radio stations around the country. Not one would return my call or, or even say yes or no or otherwise. My father at this point was living in southern New Hampshire with his latest girlfriend. You know, I hadn't lived with my dad, and I've only spent summers with him growing up. So I thought, this would be a great opportunity. I'm going to go live with my dad, see what happens. I sold my car. I bought a train ticket. I rode the train from Dallas, Texas, up to Boston. hale was in the sky that year. It was kind of cool. I get off the train April 1st, 1997, a very important day a day that I wouldn't understand the significance until a few years later. I move in with my dad, and of course I found his porn stash. I mean, absolutely. My dad's had porn ever since I could remember. It wasn't hard finding that. You know, and it's just, you know, hey, put it back when you're done, son. No, I don't want to have to go looking for my porn tapes. That was our life. That was my dad, and that was a chip off the old block. Well, since I couldn't get a radio job, the real way. I went and begged. I figured, heck, they can't turn down free labor. So I went to the closest radio station and I said, hey, do you mind if I just come and intern? Sure, no problem. Eventually they started paying me and they gave me a a weekend air shift and and eventually I got a second radio job at uh, WHOB 106.3 in Nashua. This was an alternative rock station right up my alley. This is the kind of music I was listening to, you know, so this was perfect. I was the Radio, news, and sports guy. I couldn't stand it. I was horrible. Try being in New England, having to announce hockey scores, Russian-Canadian names. It's impossible. People would call up and chew me out for obliterating their names so bad. I was terrible. I just wanted to sit and joke with the, uh, with the radio DJ guy. I just wanted to be the funny sidekick. No, they had me read the news. I really was no good at it. But... There was a young lady who kept calling in. She thought it was funny. And we struck up several conversations off the air. And one day, I was doing a live remote broadcast from a pizza joint in Nashua. And she she walks up and she introduces herself. And I was like, the very first moment I saw her, I knew I wanted to marry her. I mean, it was just as obvious as the day. 
that very night, I thanked God, someone I don't ever talk to. You see, I grew up in the Church of Christ. (laughs) My parents weren't going to church. Why should I? I left when I was like 12 or 13 years old. It was zero context in my life. I was thoroughly hedonistic, thoroughly agnostic. All roads led to heaven. I didn't care. But that night, I thank God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Please, 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 please let me marry her. Eventually, I lose both my radio jobs. I had to make a choice. You want to work in radio? Well, then you're going to have to uproot and go to wherever they will hire you. I decided I wanted to pursue marriage with this woman more than I wanted to pursue a radio career. So I had to go find a job, any job. I had to go find a, a construction job making hardly anything an hour, killing myself doing work I'd never done before, in the snow in New England. I mean, it was a a mess. But eventually, I worked my way up the chain of command and made a little more money, and I worked very hard, and I saved up, and I bought her the biggest diamond ring I could afford. $3,000 I saved up. I was very proud. I got the, yeah, give me that big one right there. Yeah. And then I I set her up. There's a, a little rock cliff that overlooks downtown Manchester, New Hampshire. And just as the sun was setting, I had carried up on top of this rock a dining room table. And I put out a red tablecloth with a silver candelabra with red candles. And I had lobsters out there. So that fiery red was just blaring off this table. And all the stoners who are normally up there drinking and smoking were like, dude, man, what are you doing, man? And I carried my future spouse up blindfolded so she wouldn't know where she was. And just as the sun is setting and the purple and the reds and the oranges are in the sky, I take the blindfold off and I open this leather white ring case that had a light inside the lid and shined right on the diamond. Oh, you couldn't get any better than that. I mean, huge brownie points. She's Portuguese. So what she did was look at the diamond and then looked at the lobster and went, Lobster! I'm like, hello, diamond, three grand. And of course, I asked her to marry me got on one knee. She said yes. Now, she said, you're going to have to become Catholic, though. Whoa, 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 what? Catholic? Why? Well, I've always been Catholic. We're going to have to raise our kids Catholic. We're going to have to get married in the church. You know what I said? Ah, whatever. I don't care. Hey, all roads lead to heaven. I don't care. If that's what I got to do to get you married, done. Sign me up. I convinced her to, we should move in. Of course, we were contracepting. I mean, that's what all reasonable people do, right? They contracept. And they have premarital sex, and we were doing all of it. It worked out great for me. It was a beautiful relationship. I could have all the beauty and the glory of being married to a woman that I can have access to whenever I want without actually having me committed to her. And for her to find fulfillment and emotional satisfaction for me, she had to give it to me. It worked great for me. Of course, we're in RCIA, and the people there were so charitable. They were so good. I mean, I am living like a drunken truck driver joined the Navy on leave in Bangkok. Out of control. Disrespectful. Thoroughly pornographic in my language, in my mentality, and everything I do in life. They didn't once make me feel uncomfortable. Not once did they not make me feel welcome. I must have said some of the most stupid things you could ever say, and they never once batted an eye at me. They were so charitable and loving. 
trying to guide me on this journey. I wasn't giving my heart to this. I just wanted to get through this. Punch my clock. Let's get through. I just want to get married. That's all. There was one night in particular that really stands out. They opened up the gospel of Matthew to chapter 5 and they started reading, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They go on to read the rest of the Beatitudes. And something hit me. It was really weird. It never happened to me like this before. I'm just sitting there and I'm listening. And God gave me a moment of clarity. For the first time in my whole life, I was like I was being honest with myself. I sat and listened to those and I said, you know what? That's true. That's true. I mean, if you're, if you're honest, whether you're a Christian or not, or Catholic or not, it doesn't matter. That's honest. That's true. That's how you seek holiness. Someone who truly loves God, someone who truly wants to be a Christian, will pursue that in their life because that's how you seek holiness. And then I said, here's a darn good thing that I'm living to be really old because I will not live that for a really long time. Maybe someday down the road in the distant future, I will be free to live those beatitudes because I knew what I would do that very night. You see, by this point, high-speed internet access had come to town. And as soon as my fiancé was asleep in bed, I would just go over to the computer. One click of the mouse, all the hardcore porn I could ever want free. And I did it often. Yeah, of course she caught me a few times, and of course that shattered her heart. Of course she must have asked herself, do I really want to give myself to this person? Is he really the right one? Do I trust myself to a man who would cheat on me? You know, studies have proven women are far more hurt when their spouse or significant other uses porn than with a real person, than if they were to cheat with a real person. Why? Because you can't compete with a fantasy. How about with thousands of fantasies? There's no possibility you could keep up with their fantasies. You could, you could pour yourself out every day and you wouldn't keep up. Studies have shown, I've read articles from secular feminists stu- who've interviewed college women across the country who've said, you won't believe what I have to do just to get the attention of a boy because they prefer their fantasies over the real person. You see, that night when I was in RCIA, I knew that that's what I would do. And I did. I went home and I masturbated and I self-medicated on pornography. But sitting there in the RCIA class, I just, it's like a light flash. It's like, that's real and I'm not. That's authentic and I'm everything but that. I'm not pursuing that and I know it. What I'm doing is wrong, and I know it. But I didn't feel free. I felt like a slave to my lust. I felt like I was not free to pursue that happiness. Well, fast forward. We get married. I become Catholic, of course. We get married. Two months or a month later, we buy a house. Two months after that, on my doorstep is my wife's mother, her sister, and her two brothers. They now need a a place to live. Let me tell you, they didn't have jobs. You know, they they didn't do things my way. 
You know, I didn't like the way that they talked. I didn't like the way that they acted. I didn't like the, anything that they did. And I was so resentful and bitter and angry. I would disrespect my wife's mother at every single turn. I would yell at her, get a job, you lazy bum. That's the kind of man I was. Could you imagine? What kind of a man would disrespect his wife's mother? I'd say it's not a man at all. It's really just a boy, a juvenile, self-absorbed. So that's kind of who I was. And then, of course, I lost my job. So now, I didn't bring home a paycheck and, and integrity and honor and, and love and anything noble. I brought home everything not noble. Everything opposite of nobility. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. My wife said, enough. I'm done with you. What good are you to me? You don't even give me a paycheck anymore. Why do I want you? We're done. I want a divorce. She wrote it on a piece of paper. You take that. I take this. We're done. This was the lowest point of my entire life. This is the train wreck. This is the 10-pound sledgehammer hits you right between the eyes. This is when you can be honest with yourself and go, you know, I just messed up my entire life. What have I done? I turned to the one person who I was sure would not be there for me. I mean, I was never there for them. I would often spit in his eye, stab him in the back. I would derade him and chastise him in front of everybody else. Why would he be there now when I needed someone? I didn't know what to do. So I did the last thing that made any sense. I opened the book of uh, Matthew up to chapter 5 and I started reading, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I felt this overwhelming urge to get on my knees. Not something I do. If I'm on my knees, it's for a different reason. But I couldn't help myself. I got down and I, got, I said, I, I, I actually said, Lord, I cannot do this. You have to do this. And now for the second time in my life, he gave me a moment of clarity. One which I did not deserve, but one which he gave me out of his love and grace. I understood things in that moment. It was a, a spring day in the April of 2002, almost 10 years from now. He let me understand things in that moment that I could not begin to understand the moment before. The moment before, I would have argued with you. I would have said, we are all born as sexual beings. It's natural. I mean, you don't need to be married or have all this commitment stuff. I mean, two consenting adults, it's all good. It's love, right? That very moment... God allowed me to understand and I didn't know how I understood it and I didn't fully understand what I now knew. But he helped me to understand. I was not born to lust. I was born to love and to love fully. And that not only could I not allow an abuse of my spouse or any other woman in my purview, but I must not allow an abuse of even myself. That my purity meant something. That I could no longer masturbate. I could no longer just lust and lose my mind in the ocean of porn that was in there because of all of my choices. That I must fight it. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't even know how to begin. It scared, the, it scared me to, you know what? I'm tempted to say it, but I won't. 
I was scared out of my mind. What does this mean? I've been masturbating for decades. I can't masturbate even? Are you crazy? He also gave me, in that moment, he said, I didn't hear any voices, no lights, no flashes, no visions, just an understanding. You are married. You have a covenant oath with your spouse. That's not a contract. You have contracts with plumbers. You don't exchange contracts with your spouse. You exchange exchange a covenant with your spouse. You exchange persons with your spouse. You hold nothing back with your spouse. Nothing. He said, you've made your bed. You've ruined your marriage. Now you're going to have to fix it. And let me tell you something. It's worth dying over. You will fix it. You will do whatever you have to do. You will beg. You will grovel. You will ask her to believe you. And guess what? She won't. And you will endure the pain of her not trusting you, her anger towards you, her bitterness, her hate, her resentment for everything you've done. You will endure that and you will offer it up to me on the cross. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. St. Paul says, I fill up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What is lacking in the sufferings of God? You. Your lack of uniting your sufferings to His. That's what's lacking. Then He gave me an insatiable hunger, a deep thirst to know Him, because I didn't know nothing about Him. I didn't know who this God was. All I know is I encountered him. That's it. That's all I knew. And he changed my mind, but I didn't know how he changed it. And I didn't know to the extent that he changed it. It was all very confusing to me. I mean, I can tell you that I tried to masturbate after that. And I couldn't. For the first time in my life, I couldn't. I mean, come on. Isn't every man doing this? Why can't I? It wasn't because he was forcing me. It's because he allowed my brain a moment of clarity to see that lust is a perverse understanding of what love is. If I had a crucifix, I'd show it to you. That's what love is. Love is a complete self-gift. Love is holding nothing back. Love is to die for your spouse, Ephesians chapter 5. Love is to lay down your life for a friend, John chapter 15. Love is not to contracept and say, no, I'm holding this back. You can't have this part of me. I don't want that part of you. Put that thing on. Take my pill. You can't have it. We're holding back. That's not love. That's selfishness. He let me understand that. Only I didn't fully understand it. And it scared me to death. So that sent me on a journey. So every single day after that, see, I was jobless and I had to beg my wife not to leave and just give me a chance. Yeah, right. I've heard that trick before. I caught you, don't you know? I know your game. I've heard your words. I'm not having any of that. Years. Years. We're going on 12 years of marriage now. It is beautiful today. But I can still see the damage that I've done in her. I can still see her trying to hold back her heart and not give it to me and trust me with it. You see, the sins we commit, they don't just affect us. It's not like if I just stay in a room and do my thing and, and never invite anybody in, it'll only be me affected. No, it's everybody in my life who's affected. Why? Because I affect them in my relationship. And my relationship is thoroughly affected by the choices that I commit. 
it would take years of witnessing that transformation before my wife would begin to trust me again. And it's a process. Why? Because she's human, just like me. She's frail, just like me. Imagine what would have happened if I had started off on a better foot. If I would have committed my heart, mind, and soul to her as she so desperately deserved. The first job that I get after this, God has a sense of humor. The first job I get is working in an office surrounded by women. Let me tell you, I would be at my desk, you know, desperately trying to focus and to no fault of theirs. Nothing they did, nothing they said, not, no, it wasn't what they were wearing. It didn't matter. I would break out into cold sweats fighting the temptation of lust for them. I couldn't be in the same room with these women. I would get up and go into the bathroom and go, God, what are you doing to me? What is this? Come on! I mean, hello, I was the Marine Corps. I mean, I've been around women my whole life. What's, what's going on here? I had no clue how to fight this. All I knew was I had to fight it. That much was clear. Knowing how, that was a problem. But God is good. And he leads me on this journey. And he gives me three fundamental components that really helped. Early church fathers, rock-solid Catholic theologians like Dr. Scott Hahn, which came to us through friends who were committed to seeing our spiritual growth and weren't willing to see us die on the vine. Then one day I encountered a talk from a person whom I've never heard of called Christopher West. And the talk was called Marriage in the Eucharist. It was a talk on theology of the body, which I had never heard of. Apparently, this old gray-haired dude living in Rome, he wore a funny white hat on his head, he wrote the theology of the body in his first, I don't remember how many Wednesday homilies of his pontificate, and he called them the theology of the body. And this Christopher West guy, a married man, a layman, uh, was a teacher, was a teacher, an evangelist of this teaching. So I get this CD and I'm listening to it, and for the first time, I heard why the human person has dignity. For the first time, I understood why we weren't lusting after people as much as we were to love people. And why, because of the dignity of the human person, I can't allow myself to abuse a woman, even in my mind. And because of her dignity, she can't even allow herself to be used in that way. You see, I looked at women my whole life because I was trained to do so. Thank you to my father and his father and my stepfathers and all those in my presence. I looked at women as if they were commodities. Like a Coke can. You know, like my water bottle over here. When I'm done with it, well, it has no use for me anymore. It's garbage. You throw it away. That's how we looked at women. The pornified mind looks at you in that way. In your heart of hearts, you know that that's inherently wrong. You are made in the image and likeness of God. You are a daughter of the Most High God. You have dignity built within you that is queenly. And every man has an obligation to protect it. Go back to the garden, Genesis chapter 3. 
Seven verses from Genesis 2.25. Adam is having to hide himself and cover his nakedness and Eve is covering her nakedness. Why? For the first time in their marriage, the opportunity exists that Adam will abuse her even in his mind. And she must protect herself from that. For she is a woman, a child of the Most High God. She has dignity. Adam realizes that his passions are now in control. And for the first time, he may abuse his spouse. And he he better protect himself from doing that. So he has to overt his eyes. He has to remove himself from the situation. How often do we do that today? How often does a man overt his eyes? Because a woman is in a situation, whether she wanted to be or not, that is inherently against her dignity as a woman. How often do we allow these abuses to go on? Because the pornified mind has convinced us that this is par for the course. This is just the way people are. You see, I realized in my own journey that I was not born to lust, that I was born to love. And just as I inherited my sin from my father, choosing it for myself, trust me, but he from his father, God in his grace allowed me to come to a point where I could say, this far and no further. My sons will not inherit inherit pornography from me. My daughters will know that they are loved and cherished as daughters of the Most High God. And they should accept nothing less than a man who's willing to lay it all out. If he loves her, then he'll die for her. And that's not a Hallmark card. That's a reality. If he loves her, he'll give everything for her. What will he give? Well, he'll be there when she's old and fat and wrinkly and gray-haired. He'll be there for her when she's not looking the most pretty and she can't stand up to the porn image. He'll be there for her and guess what? He'll love her and he'll be much more attracted to her. Why? Because she poured it all out for him. Because she gave her heart to him. She trusted it all for him and she rose his kids and educated and sacrificed so much. You see, the father loves the son. He gives everything. He pours it all out. Jesus turns around and gives it all right back to the Father. And from them, from all eternity, comes the Holy Spirit. That inner life of the Trinity is stamped into our sexual identity as man and woman. Because when the two become one in the marital union, they model the inner life of God himself. So when I pervert myself, I don't just affect myself, and I don't just affect my spouse, I affect God. You see, when... Moses came down the mountain and smashed the Ten Commandments on the base of Mount Sinai. He took the golden calf and he had it melted down to a fine powder. And he put it into the water and mixed it up. And he made all the Israelites drink it. Why? If you look in the book of Leviticus, you'll see that when there was a woman, a wife, who committed adultery, they would bring her to the tabernacle, to the priest, And then they would make her drink water filled with dust. You see, we've committed adultery against our spouse, God Most High. God made the prophet Hosea marry a prostitute. Why? Why would he do such a thing? 
Hosea asked, God said, so you'll know what it's like to be me, married to a harlot who cheats on you, who stabs you in the back, who abuses you at every turn. But guess what? Like me, you're going to see it through all the way to the end. No matter what your spouse does, you will never abandon her. You will never abuse her. You will accept the suffering and you will offer it up for her sanctification and her salvation. That is what the pornified mind can't understand. It sees only self. It doesn't care about your feelings, your desires, your wants. It cares only about self, how you can please me. I can tell you stories about how I had to be truly educated on what it means to just make love to my wife. See, I thought lovemaking was porn. Not even close. I'll share one intimate detail with you. Lovemaking has never been better since I've learned to pour myself out to her. John Paul II, a gray-haired, stuffy old man who's never been married and never had sex, he wrote in Love and Responsibility that the man should withhold himself in the lovemaking act so that his, his partner, his spouse, can come to a greater intimate union and perfection and peak and height and climax in the act itself. Even in the lovemaking, you're to pour yourself out, men. But that world's not telling you that, is it? It says you, 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 you. But the truth is just the opposite. Love gives. It never takes. Right? So that's my journey. So I've come to the point where we have five children. We have three entrusted to the mercy of God in heaven, prayerfully. I have a teenager. <laughs> Scary. How did I get a teenager? I mean, I, wasn't, I, wasn't I just 23? I mean, now I'm balding and I have a teenager looking at college in four years. We're at the point where we have to have the talk with him. But I can tell you he's already, already ten times the man that I've ever been. Already, he respects the dignity of human persons. I look at him and I just go, someday I want to be him. Innocent, genuine, sincere. That doesn't mean he's perfect, trust me. We could tell stories. But I have so much hope for him because you can see a real sincerity in his heart. that He cares about other people enough to not abuse them, even in things he doesn't fully understand and respects our wishes as parents not to let him watch material that we don't think he's mature enough to handle. He will go out of his way to avoid it, even when he's in, in, amongst friends who might not go so far. <sighs> I want to be like him someday, able to resist these kinds of peer pressures. So that's it. That's my story. By the grace of God, I can't wait to see what he does tomorrow, prayerfully. I'd be happy to take any questions you have or elaborate on anything further. Just let me know to shout out. Wow, I am that good that everybody has nothing to say. Right. Give us time Yeah. I will say this. I'll tell you a little more about what I've learned from John Paul II, especially in how to combat sexual temptation for men. Now, before I say that, um, there are lots of 
studies, research done by not religious people, secular people, psychologists, researchers, people of that nature. The Witherspoon Institute just put out a whole series of, uh, of talks on video uh, interviewing people of various disciplines, looking at the effects of pornography on culture. So even if we were secularists, and I don't know where you are, but I can only speak from my perspective, I am not a secularist. I look through the world. I, my lens is through the Catholic faith because it is the one true holy Catholic and apostolic church. It is the church Christ founded. It is the church Christ gave us. So I look at everything through that lens. And like Augustine says, there is no difference between truth in science and truth in faith. It is the same truth. It is a person. It is Jesus Christ. He said, if you seem to have a contradiction, he says, you just don't understand the faith. The science can't lie if it's true. It's one thing. So, having said that, if I took my faith off the table and we looked at this from pure secular mindset, nothing, we're not, no philosophy, just science, the effects of pornography on this culture is devastating. It is devastating. And these secularists, they prove it. The plasticity of the brain on how it is affected because a lot of people will take pornography and they'll lump it into drug and alcohol addiction. And they're not far from truth on that. Why? Because men, when you see a woman, a beautiful woman, and you start to feel that tingling, that's because dopamine is being created in your brain. Why? Because your brain was designed to create a chemical reaction that would excite you. Why? Because you're supposed to come together in a more unified way. Through the act of lovemaking, you come to be one. And the gift of life is poured out as a result of that action. Not always, but the potential is there, and it should be. The physiological aspects of our bodies are designed, and they speak, and they shout to the truth of what we learn in philosophy and through the faith. The body is designed to do this. The problem is when we abuse ourselves and others through things like pornography or sexual license, we mess up. We start screwing with how the brain works. Then we see devastating effects. And it affects lots of different things. And so they've done a lot of research on how that brain is affected and how our emotions are affected and how women have now changed dramatically just in the last 30 years as a result of the pornified culture we live in. When contraception kicked off, so did everything else. Abortions took off, skyrocketed. Pornography skyrocketed. And now you have a culture in which women have lost the genuine femininity that they were given. They think somehow that they're supposed to compete with men as if making a, a good woman is to be equal to a man. Why would you lower yourself that way? Why would you condescend to where a man is? A man's made from dirt. You're made from the side of man, from the best of man. That's why you're so beautiful. Your glory radiates the glory of God and the glory of femininity. But the culture says, no, you're, you have to be like a man, sterile. You have to pursue work all the time. Well, are you capable? Yay and amen. I mean, you're what, 10 times smarter than we are? you're capable of everything but just because you're capable doesn't mean that's your that's your mission you use that intelligence for other brilliant things but because of that aspect contraception took its roots it started to change the mentality of the human of the human person 
abortion skyrocket, pornography skyrockets, and now women have to be sterile. And now, statistically, women make up a third of the users of pornography. A third. That's a huge number. A third. The Witherspoon Institute quoted that statistic. If you'd like those references, I'd be happy to send them to you. There's lots of research and study out there to show how devastating this is on all walks of life, women, men, children. And you know what's interesting in, in, in my speaking on this issue? And I, I'm not a rock star. It's not like my story was like, wow, man, that guy's like Aerosmith, man. He like has all these wild parties. I'm the average man. I'm just like most men. That's what should scare you. It's not like it's happening only to the rock stars. It's happening to every man around you. And their story, oftentimes, is worse than mine. So having said that, what you're going to see is that a man will sit in the audience oftentimes and hear me tell my story, and for the first time in their lives, they're going to feel free to admit what they've always wanted to admit, but always felt like they couldn't, because everybody around them is doing it, right? I mean, this is normal, right? I mean, it's normal for you, right? To feel all shame and, and miserable, never finding satisfaction. Because I can tell you, every time I masturbated, I was seeking satisfaction. And I can tell you, I never once found it. The moment I came down off my euphoric high, I felt only shame, deep shame. Why? Because we have a hole, and we try to fill it. And when we try to fill it with everything but God, it becomes more and more base. So, the image of the naked lady that I looked at when I was eight, which was just her naked, that did it for me back then. Today, not even close. Oh, I can't have a stagnant picture. No, I need motion, and I need some craziness. You're going to have to have that woman do some craziness now. You see how we fall deeper and deeper? It's like a vortex. It just sucks you further and further down until you get to bestiality, homosexuality, incest, and all other craziness. You know how many rape videos there are out there in porn? Could you even imagine the value of the human person has fallen so far that we would get off on seeing a person raped? Holy cow, murdered? Was it just this week some ethicist issued a report saying that they felt it was completely okay to abort a child after it was born? because they don't think it's a person. Oh, it might have had a heartbeat ever since week seven, but other than that, it's not a person. It's outside the womb, but to them, it's not a person. When you look across the table to somebody you're dealing with and you don't see a person, you see something else, property, then it becomes very easy to abuse that person. Look at the sex traffic that goes on in our country or in Russia or China or throughout all Europe. It's horrific. In Russia, they use abortions as contraception. Some women have had so many abortions, their uterus burst. It's a horrific scene out there. If we peel back the layers, we're going to be so scandalized by what the reality is. But we go home, we'll go to the grocery store, we'll check out, and we'll see half-naked women, because statistically women always are better salespersons than men. 
you put a beautiful picture of a female on any product whatsoever, you stand a statistical better chance at selling that product no matter what it is, which is why women are on everything, which is why they're right there at checkout. I want you to buy this. And women give themselves for that. Why? Because they want to be loved. They want to be cherished. And if I have to do this for you to love me, then I'm going to do this. But they're not actually being loved. They're being abused, and they're allowing themselves to be abused. I don't know that I brought it. I meant to bring it, but I I was invited to Miami last year to uh, speak and to commentate on a movie that had just come out. It was called Out of Darkness. It's a documentary about a woman in the porn industry. And it blew me away. And you obviously know where I'm at in my walk of life, my faith journey. And I was still blown away by this movie. I'd love for every man to see this movie. Because for the first time, you can put a human person to that image that you've been lusting at for so long. She's real. She's not a fantasy. She has wants, desires, dreams, hopes. And let me tell you, she is thoroughly broken. Thoroughly broken. This poor woman was in prostitution when she was a teenager because she was kicked out by her father. Her father's job is to make her understand that she is loved and cherished and to imitate the love of God the Father through his actions for her and as doing so, affirming her genuine femininity so that she will seek the relationships in her life that only follow that model. But when you don't do that, you get quite the opposite. You get a void in her life where she desperately wants to be loved and will do all kinds of craziness to get what she thinks is going to fill that, but it never does. It only gets worse. The way she talked about her experience in that industry, it was like a train wreck, watching a train wreck slowly. It was painful to watch. And this is a woman who's had a conversion. This is a woman who now spends her life trying to help others come out of that industry. And you can still see the devastating effects on this in her life. And how did she come out? Because a man loved her enough to love her and not abuse her. A pastor's son started hanging out with her, refused to touch her in any sexual way. And that, that like, freaked her out. Like, she'd never met a man that didn't want to abuse her. Like, what is this? Do you want to play checkers with me? That really intrigued her. And he just slowly, steadily, with great love and charity, witnessed to her in his Christian faith. He said, I want to love you. I want to know you. I don't, I don't need to know all this craziness. I don't need to know this nonsense. I mean, wh- that's a man right there. That's a man. How many men have the courage to go and minister to a woman like that, knowing her background, knowing that that was still the work she was doing at that time? That's a man. That's a man who pours it all out, puts it all on the line. That's not like the men we see outside these doors or anywhere else in our society. It's a complete contrast. It led to her own conversion. God used him to convert her. And he's still converting her like he's converting me and everybody else. It's a journey. But through her witness, I really feel like men could see the side that they've never seen before. She is a person made in the image and likeness of God. She should be cherished and truly loved and respected, not abused and used for self-gratification. I wish I had that, but I don't. So anyway, all right. So I've tang- I don't even know what time it is. You guys are probably half asleep already. But I'll say this real quick, and then we'll wrap up. 
um, John Paul II, Love and Responsibility, on his chapter on shame and continence, he says, so that the mere fact of cutting oneself off from certain values, for instance, from those to which sensuality and sentiment are naturally responsive, does nothing to develop the person unless it results from acknowledgement of the objective order based on experience of the truth about those values. There is no valid continence without recognition of the objective order of the values. The value of the person is higher than the value of sex. The point is, this is the secret by which a man can combat his sexual temptation and desire for lust. You see, when I had my conversion and when I started to come to understand and know theology of the body, I went back to my Marine Corps days and I took a lesson from the military. The military trains its troops to prepare for combat, to prepare for situations that they might not expect when they happen, like ambushes, for instance. They train you, how do you react when someone's shooting at you? Okay, well, of course, you stop and you take a pole and you ask the guys, how many of you want to take cover? Anybody? Anybody? No. You don't think. You react. Why do you think martial arts always train, train, train? So you're reacting and not thinking. This works in the spiritual combat too. I know where I will encounter sexual temptation. Oh yeah, I'm not stupid. I know it's at the grocery store. I know what office it'll be in. I know what road the billboard is on. I know which person will tempt me the most. Okay? I know all the sources. I know what radio stations, what television channels. I know all the sources. If I already know the points at which I will encounter the enemy, and by enemy I mean temptation, then why aren't I prepared to handle those situations before I get there? Only an intelligent person would prepare themselves for that, right? So, John Paul II uses this, and he says, you must have continence. He talks about overting your eyes. He talks about removing yourself from the situation, avoiding the near occasion of sin and temptation and lust. But then he says, as I quoted you, that's not good enough. Simply because you're disciplined to do those things, it'll get you through for a time, but you'll fail in the long run. Why? Because fundamentally, you must take advantage of that contact to remind yourself of the dignity of the human person. I can't lust after that woman. She has dignity. She is a daughter of the Most High God. I must not lust. He talks about, in the very next page, about how when a man starts to feel all that tingling and like he's seeing maybe an image, a pornographic image, and he's starting to feel his body be possessed by the dopamine and the tingling that's starting to take possession of him. He says, John Paul II, a stuffy old gray-haired man in Rome, says, take that moment and flip it on its head. Use it for your advantage. Let all of that emotion that's overwhelming you Ride like a wave, because on that wave, you will place the dignity of the human person, and it will permeate every portion of your being. When you remind yourself of the dignity of the human person, it is impossible to lust after them. What I learned to do was I learned to pray Hail Marys, because Our Lady, the Mother of God, Mary, is the most pure and chaste spouse. She is the model of purity. Who better to help me combat my impurity than she who is all purity? So every time I feel tempted to lust, I pray Hail Marys. 
I avert my eyes. I remind myself she is a daughter of the Most High God. I remove myself if I have to. And let me tell you, it works every time. Every single time. It works without fail. It's never failed. When I first started doing it, I would pray Hail Marys all day long. I literally would pray hundreds a day because I was so tempted all the time. Everything around me affected me. So I was literally praying Hail Marys all day long. The more I implement this discipline, the more I practice it, the less often I actually have to do it. But I do it, and I'm trained. It's called muscle memory. I wrote an article about it on my website. Muscle memory, combat rules for the combat Christian. Now it's muscle memory. So if I'm driving down the road and and I see a billboard that might not be anything sexually explicit, but it might say something that reminds me of something else that conjures up an image that I put in my brain 20 years ago without thinking almost, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou. I'll just sit there and I'll just repeat Hail Marys until that image passes away because it's not the temptation that's sinful. It's the enjoyment. It's the allowing the temptation to go into action action of thought, action of physically. So, I don't want the temptation, but I've trained myself to be ready for it, no matter where I'm at. And that's not to say I'm, I'm, I'm not in sainthood, I'm not going to levitate, okay? I'll, I'll spend many more uh, days in purgatory than I will in the beatific vision. But, some days are good, some days are bad, but at least I've prepared myself for the fight. And the trick is to decide to fight. That's how men can have freedom. You're not a victim. It's not a disease. It's sin. You go to confession. You receive the grace of the sacrament. You go to God. He gives you the grace to fight it. You can live and walk in a state of grace. It's not a disease. It's sin. And he's given us the remedy to sin and his son, Jesus Christ, and the sacraments he gave us in the church. Thank you.